Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. And um, if you don't know me, my name's Ian. I'm one of the ministers of the church here. If you're a visitor with us today, you're especially welcome. Uh, please do fill in one of the welcome cards on the table on the back with the little green fuzzy tablecloth on it. Looks like a billiard table without the pockets. Um, and then we can keep in touch with you. Um, today we're reaching the climax of the Book of Ruth. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have so far. Um, I'm, I'm excited today to uh, bring this little series to a close and uh, very much feeling like the best is yet to come. Um, I, I obviously didn't write the book of Ruth, but um, leading you through it, it feels like I'm leading you on a walk up a mountain you know that those times when you go on a walk and then you get to the top and suddenly the vista opens up, the panorama opens up and, the, and it's worth all the effort getting to the top and the view is incredible. Uh, today I hope we'll reach the summit and I hope by the end you'll sense that the view will be and is incredible. Here, here's the plan. There's a number of themes that overlap and collide in the book of Ruth. So I've really tried this week to work hard to make things simple for me and for you. And um, so I want to give you this afternoon three alternative ways, three different ways that you could read the story of Ruth. There's only four chapters and there's different angles here. So first of all, so far, I think we've seen, I hope you'll agree, is this working? There we go. That the book of Ruth is, first of all, one way of looking at it is that it's a story of rescue and redemption. Um, I, I think that always fires our imagination. Whenever you hear a story of someone who's in need and there's a great rescue uh, put into effect and, and they're kind of rescued, it kind of fires the imagination. We've seen this already. We began in chapter one with two women in deep trouble. And the story ends today with not just both of them, but a whole village celebrating with great joy. It began with death and famine and emptiness and to some degree loneliness, but it ends with new life, joy and fullness. These two women, Naomi and Ruth, are rescued from their desperate plight and there's very much a happy ending in this story. And I think whoever wrote the book of Ruth, I, I hope you'll agree with this by now, is good at writing stories. It, it is it is a brilliant little short story. Um, it, it's really a literary masterpiece, I think. The narrator draws us into the world of Naomi and Ruth and um, builds the tension and the suspense by making each chapter the answer to the cliffhanger in the previous one. So we get to the end of chapter one and we're asking, will these women even survive? That's the cliffhanger. In chapter two, the answer is yes, they find food. But the second question at the end of chapter two is, will they find love? And then we get into chapter three and the answer to that question is yes, as, as the romance between Ruth and Boaz blossoms. But the question at the end of chapter three is, will it work? Will Boaz be able to pull it off? Because there's a snag in the plan. There's another guy in the way. 
It's interesting too, I don't know if you've noticed this, how the pace of the story slows right down. Chapter 1 covers over 10 years. Chapter 2 covers 6 or 7 weeks. Chapter 3, if you were here last week, happens over one night. And chapter 4 is pretty much done by 9.30 in the morning. So the whole book kind of goes big and then slows right down. What we've got in chapter 4, if you've been watching Wimbledon, don't they have a brilliant slow motion thing on the BBC for Wimbledon? The detail that, that, someone said it was like a thousand frames a second. So you, I mean, I wouldn't like to be a tennis player because the expressions on their face and they get every detail. It slows right down. This is chapter four, slows right down, and it's really a slow motion legal drama. And I I think the the reason the narrator writes this way is that what we're going to look at this afternoon is really the crux of the story. The whole pace of the book slows right down to these few minutes on the morning at at the gate of the town of Bethlehem It's effectively a court. Now, people do seem to love legal dramas on TV, don't they? Um, Jane and I, uh, I don't know, sometimes we're binge-watching on Netflix. There there was a series that we watched recently called The Good Wife, which is an American legal drama. And it's billed as a legal drama, but it's not really about the legal side of it. It's about the relationships of the people who are involved in the companies. It's weird because the law can be boring and technical. And the thing that makes this legal drama on this morning in chapter 4 so compelling is really that we're all holding our breath as everything hangs in the balance for Ruth and Boaz. Can Boaz pull it off? Can he get the other guy out of the way legally so that a wedding can happen and babies can be born and the party can start? This this is really the climax of the story, the final cliffhanger right here in chapter 4. So here's, here's my second way to read the book of Ruth. While you could read it, it's a story of rescue and redemption. One second way that you could read the book of Ruth is is this. The book of Ruth is a story of love overcoming obstacles. It's a slightly different twist. And I think that also draws us in. Here are two people who love one another dearly, but there's a snag. There's an obstacle to them being together. And chapter 4 is all about Boaz overcoming the obstacle because he loves Ruth, so that he and her could be married. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to try and walk through this slow-mo legal drama and we're going to see how Boaz wins, okay? I, I, I don't want to spoil it for you, but Boaz does win, okay? And we're going to see how he wins. And then I want to give you my third suggestion of how we could read the book of Ruth. So we've got two, we'll complete the set and we'll have three. And then we'll use those three as a little springboard to just close off the series 
by seeing what it all points to and how that connects with us in Rotherham here, 2017. So let's um, first of all have a little look at what I've entitled A Clever Negotiation. Is this going to work? I'm going to let you do it, Sam. Clever negotiation. There you go. First of all, the, the question, obviously, is, who is this loser guy who's in the way? Who, who is this loser? We never get to know his name. I'm going to call him Mr. No Name, okay? Billy No Name. Let's call him that. What a loser. He, he gets in the way of Boaz and Ruth. We're all rooting for Boaz and Ruth. And this pain in the backside is lurking in the wings. We all hate him already, don't we? We don't even know his name. So I said last week I'd try and explain the legal background to this. So let, just bear with me because stay with me because this is important. But we need to work out what's going on. Last week I said to you, in ancient cultures like this one, the two most important things in anyone's life would be, hey, shall we have a little quiz? What were they? <laughs> were you all listening last week? Two most important things in anyone's life would be their family and their land. That, that, in this kind of culture, it's, it's not quite like that for us now, is it? But in this culture... That would be the two most important things, land and family. And this is no less true in ancient Israel. And in fact, the, these two things are at the forefront of many of the laws that God gave to the Israelite people in the Old Testament. So let's think about just two of them. Um, Sam, just flick it on for it. There you go. Live, oh, go on, you might as well leave it. The, these are two laws. The Hebrew word for brother-in-law is the word levir. More specifically, it's actually the husband's brother would be the Levir. So in the Old Testament, there's a set of laws known as the Levirate laws. And what this is, what this means is, if, if you've got, um, if you've, if you've got a brother-in-law, get, get this. If, if you were married and, and you, and you died leaving a widow, if you had a brother, his job would be to marry your wife, to carry on your family name. That was basically the gist of what happened. It's all dealt with in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Seems strange to us, but the idea with these laws was that no family line should ever be allowed to die out. And the family and the clan that you were part of would remain pure and it would last down the generations. This is true in other cultures as well, but it's stay in the Bible. Now, the point I want you to get here is that there's a huge cost to this. Because if I, if I had a brother who died, my share of our parents' inheritance, if my brother died, I would get a bigger share of the inheritance. You understand that? But if I then marry his wife and have a child, that child would carry on his name and he would inherit the lost share of my dead brother. Do you get that? So if I don't marry my brother's widow, I end up getting more share. If I do marry, I end up getting a smaller share. 
So there's an economic cost to any brother who willingly fulfilled the Levirate law. The same applied to land. Sometimes families would get into financial difficulty and the law provided that they could remortgage their land. The new owner would then get use of the land and could benefit from all the land. But if a family were poor and they got themselves into debt in that way, the Old Testament laws made provision that if there was someone in the family, the extended family, who had the resources to buy that land back, that they should do that. In the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, it says this. Let me read a quote to you. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countryman has sold. This person was known in Hebrew as a goel, which we translate as a kinsman redeemer. He's, he's part of the family, he's kin, kinsman, kinsman redeemer. So in other words, the goel was the person in the family who had the resources to buy back what had been lost to keep it in the family. Now, that's it. We're done with all that. Here's the backdrop to the book of Ruth. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, has lost both her husband and her land. Actually, her two sons have died as well. She's past childbearing age, so Naomi's family is finished. Her hope has gone. There's no possible human way that Naomi's family can be resurrected now. Her land is in disrepair, and her family name, this part of Israel's family tree, is a dead branch. The real spirit of the Levirate law was, was the protection of widows, the family line carrying on. And even though Boaz is not technically a brother here, Ruth and Boaz concoct a plan to ma- for Bo- Boaz and Ruth to marry and have a child that can continue Naomi's line. That's really what's going on. We saw that last week in chapter 3. So the reason Boaz goes to court here in chapter 4 is because he and Ruth are planning to combine these two sets of laws and Boaz is going to both buy the land and find a way to marry Ruth so that their child can carry on Naomi's line. Do you get that? Uh, it's complex, but that's, that's kind of what's going on. Here, that's the situation. Here's the snag. Mr. Billy No Name. The problem for them both is that there's a nearer relative than Boaz. So while the plan is a good idea, this must have been a shock for Ruth to hear in the middle of the night last week. In chapter 3 and verse 12, I think it is, um, Boaz says to Ruth, although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I am. So in other words, Boaz is second in the queue. 
there's another guy in front of Boaz who should do this and could do this. Ruth, Boaz says, I love you, but there's someone else who has face claim. And Ruth's inside thinking, no, no, not Billy, no name. The more I've thought about this guy, the more he seems like a loser to me. And I'll tell you why. If he is the closest relative of Elimelech, and these Old Testament laws we've been looking at basically encourage families to stick together and help one another so the family won't die out and the land won't get lost, where has he been? Where has this loser been all these years? This has been going on for 10, 12 years. This guy has never put his hand up once. I don't know if he's ever been to see Naomi. I'm just calling on you, Naomi, to make sure you're okay. He's like, he's absent, isn't he? Where has he been? Does he not care? When, when I used to work in, in the pits, in the pits, I had a team of fitters who worked for me. And, uh, I would be at my desk in my office with our overalls on at six o'clock in the morning and the guys would come into my office and we, and you, you, you'd ask for it, maybe you'd say, you do that, you do that, you do that. I'm looking for a volunteer to do this. And you would see everyone's shoulders go. We had a little joke, slopey shoulders. You know that phrase? Nobody wants to do it. Nobody, nobody wants to be known as someone who's got slopey shoulders either. So people find clever ways of not looking like they've got slopey shoulders. This guy, Mr. Billy No Name, to me, looks like he's got sloping shoulders. I want nothing to do with this. And here's, that's the situation. There's the snag. Here's the surprise. Boaz goes to sit down at the gate of the town. This is basically where all the city business is transacted. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So Mr. Billy No Name comes and sits down with Boaz, wondering what's up. And then Boaz asks for a quorum of town elders to come Mr. No Name must be thinking hang on a minute this is a bit serious now ten witnesses they come and sit down too he's basically convening a court this ramps up the tension and makes this this is not just like oh you're doing mate I just want to have a chat with you about something everyone's kind of on alert now this is ramping up and Boaz has a massive lump in his throat but there's a huge surprise because I think what we're expecting Boaz to say in front of Mr. No Name and all the witnesses is, I want to marry Ruth. But he doesn't say that. Let's look at what he says. Verse 3. He said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here 
and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you. And I'm the next in line. He starts with the land. There's a lot we don't know here. But I think this is basically saying that Naomi wants to sell the rights to the land. She can't afford to work it herself. It's fallen into disrepair maybe while she's been away. She and Ruth also need cash to live on. But I want you to get something important here about Mr. No Name. If Naomi has no surviving children, which she doesn't, and he knows that, and Mr. No Name is her nearest relative, when Naomi dies, he stands to inherit this land anyway. Perhaps that explains why he's got slopey shoulders and he hasn't come forward already. Why pay for something that's going to become yours in the end anyway? Why would he want to buy it early? But Boaz here very cleverly throws a massive spanner in the works. You're first in line, mate, but if you don't want to buy it, I will. He's basically saying to him, this morning you need to make your mind up. And you can hear his business cogs going. I hope you can. Mr. No Name, he's, I don't know, he's thinking, okay, I might have to tighten my belt a bit. I wasn't planning on doing this yet. But whatever I spend on this land is going to come back to me anyway when Naomi dies. I I can't really lose with this. I've got to do a bit of belt tightening, but in the end, I'm spending money that's going to become mine anyway. So his answer is clear. And at the end of, what is it, verse 4? Verse 5. These verses are too small. I will redeem it, he said. I think at this point, Mr. Nonem's thinking, why, why all this kind of palaver of ten elders and all these witnesses? This is a simple decision. He says, I'll redeem it. Now, I, I wonder whether Ruth was watching this from a distance. And we're reading this, and when he says, I will redeem it, if you, are, you, are you in your heart going, no, not Mr. Nonem. We don't want him to buy it. No, that's not the right answer. But Boaz isn't finished. He's got a trump card up his sleeve. Let's have a look at verse 5. Boaz said, he basically looks the guy in the eye and says, okay, fair enough. But on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you do realize, don't you, that you also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the dead man's widow, Naomi, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz basically says, he he connects these two laws, and he basically looks this guy in the eye and says, you can't have the privilege of buying the land without also taking on the responsibility of furthering this poor widow's family line. It's up to you, mate. And he puts that to him. I think this is quite a radical 
and perhaps a new idea even for the elders, but it's interesting that no one argues, no one says, hang on a minute, boys, you can't do that. These two laws are separate. They all get the logic of what he's saying. He's basically saying to this guy, do you just want the land or do you care for these poor widows? Are you just trying to get rich or do you care about their neediness? And it's a massive deal breaker. At this, the guardian redeemer said, I I, I can't redeem it there. And look at what he says. Because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I can't do it. Why? Because he knows now that the money he puts into this land, if he marries Ruth and they have a child, everything he puts from his estate into this land won't go back to him, but will go to the child that they have. So he looks at it and thinks, this makes no commercial sense. I'm out. Dragon's done. I'm sorry, I'm out. And we're all going, yes! <laughs> Boaz has done it. He's found a legal way with witnesses to make this happen for him and Ruth. The narrator then explains a strange little custom about taking his sandal off. And um, I think the idea here is, in ancient cultures, where you walk is, is like, you know, your land. So when they, if someone's selling some land, they'll basically take their, one of their shoes off and give it to the other guy and say, there you go, mate, you can walk all over it now. It's your, the land's yours, mate. You can, you can have my shoe to prove it. And the, the narrator explains that in, in brackets here. Boaz makes a great speech. Just look with me at verse 9. Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, I wonder whether Ruth was watching this. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and his two sons, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Signed, sealed, delivered. I've got the shoe. (laughs) And the elders, amazingly, they just explode with this amazing prayer. Then the elders and all the people in the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. These are women in the Old Testament who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathra and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you. By this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to you. Do, you think, do they sound happy to you? Well, they don't all answer at once. It sounds to me like they, he sounds happy. So, Boaz gets the girl. That's the clever negotiation. There's a wedding and there's a honeymoon baby. How about that? This is, Ruth's been married before 10 years and didn't conceive. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you 
without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. It becomes clear here that this whole story, even though it's called Ruth, is really about Naomi. She's the one whose family are being rescued from oblivion. And this little child is the hope of her extinguished family. The one who lost everything is being filled back up again. The family that was dead is coming back to life again. The one who was empty and hopeless is now full to overflowing and rejoicing. Let me give you, let me just build up to a third way to look at the book of Ruth. Oops, it's working now. Clever negotiation, a joyful birth. The big story. So, you're still with me. There's a little child called Obed born. And, um, but then we get the real point. This miracle baby born to Ruth in Bethlehem. Look at this 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then there's a little family tree that includes Obed and Jesse and ends with David. David was Israel's greatest king. Some commentators have suggested that this genealogy is tacked on the end of a great story and it's out of place. It doesn't make any sense. It's a wonderful short story and it finishes with a boring list of names. I want to suggest to you that actually this is the most important part of the book. It's the cherry on the top of the cake And here's why. Some commentators believe that this story of Ruth was written during the the early reign of King David. And it seems like some people may have been suggesting that because David had in his family line a foreign Moabite woman, that his legitimacy as king was in question. Your family tree is not pure, mate. You don't tick all the boxes. We are God's chosen people. The idea is for us to be pure. We are the ones who keep God's law. There's no place for pagan outsiders who disregard God's law. I think David was being criticized. It's a form, if you like, of religious snobbery. David, you are not good enough to be Israel's king. Why? Because Ruth is not good enough to be part of your family line. You ought to step aside and let someone else be the king. So put yourself in the place of the people who are first reading this story in the reign of King David and these whispers and gossip are going on. Ruth as a story unbelievably, I think, is a piece of political propaganda. 
This story is written to demonstrate how noble David's ancestors were. Ruth's conversion in chapter 1, her devotion to Naomi, her faith in God, her love for Boaz, her willingness to sacrifice everything to continue Naomi's family line. She's more of an Israelite than Israelites are. So the joyful approval of the elders here and the explosion of gladness among the leading women in Bethlehem, all of this is written and designed to show how the whole community were going, yes, we love Ruth, isn't she amazing? What a joy to have her as part of our community. Even though Ruth is an outsider and was originally a pagan, she was able to take her place as a member of this community as being more than good enough. The point of this story is these people are not outsiders. They actually fulfill God's laws by their faith and love. In fact, rather than ticking boxes and trying to prove their ethnicity, they prove that they are really God's people by their hearts being involved. So here's my final suggestion. Ruth is a story of rescue and redemption. It is a story of love overcoming obstacles. But I want to suggest to you, Ruth is actually a story about being enough. This story is written as a defense of how outsiders, like Ruth, can legitimately be brought inside. This story is about being included rather than excluded. This is a story that is about how genuine faith and love are enough. And that trying to be enough by just ticking boxes is never enough. Hey, we're not quite at the top of the mountain yet, though. And here's why. We, we could stop here now. And my message to you today would be something along the lines of, hey guys, be like Ruth and be like Boaz. And then you'll be enough. The great problem with that as a message is that it divides people into those who think they can and those who think they can't. And that is what religion always does. Religion always separates people into two groups, those who think they're enough and those who think they're not enough. Don't let me digress here. It's not just religion that says that. I don't know if the irony of this is, is lost on you, but we live in a culture that is very secular now. But even our secular culture has this idea within it that you are either part of that culture, i.e. good enough, according to the rules of secularism, or you're beyond the pale and outside of that. So even people who are not religious do this as well. Am I enough? 
Or am I not enough? Often we're striving all of our lives to do the things which will basically mean that we are enough. So that no one will look at our lives and say, sorry, you're not enough. I don't think the message of the book of Ruth is for me to send you home and say, be like Ruth, be like Boaz. This is not a story that is urging you or me to strive to be enough. This is a story of rescue and redemption and of love overcoming obstacles and about someone else making it possible for you and I to be enough. This genealogy here appears again in the Bible in one other place. It actually points way beyond King David. A thousand years beyond King David, in fact. It appears in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to just turn to that. Maybe you can find it. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. One thousand years later. Do you ever wonder when we come to Christmas carol services why we have these boring listed names in the Christmas readings? Sometimes we don't even read them because we think they're boring. They're not boring, they're important. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 1 says this. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother, sorry, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, and it, so it goes on, and right at the bottom, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This genealogy points past King David a thousand years down the line to King Jesus. This is not just David's family tree. Ruth and Boaz actually become ancestors of Jesus. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. A thousand years later, here they are sitting at the gate of the town of Bethlehem. This is, this is amazing. And their story points forward of all the towns in all of Israel... Jesus was born in the same town as Obed and then David and then a thousand years later Jesus. You couldn't plan that. You couldn't make that up. That's one of the compelling evidences for me that this is a story that has the hand of God behind this history. So the way I summarize the book of Ruth is bringing something life-changing into focus here. The story of Ruth is giving us a massive clue that the story of Jesus one day 
is a story of rescue and redemption, a story of love coming, overcoming obstacles, and a story of how we can be enough. What is it about the story of Jesus that fulfills these big themes in Ruth? In simple language, the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate rescuer, is not Boaz, but Jesus. But then the question is, what, what is it that we need rescuing from? I don't need rescuing from anything. I'm in Rotherham. It's fine. What do we, why has Jesus come into the world? What is it that puts you and I in such great peril that Jesus had to leave heaven and be born in Bethlehem to embark on a rescue mission? This week, Oh, bear, bear with. If you've, if you've not listened to anything I've said so far, listen to this part, because this is where we're going. This is the summit of the mountain, where the view is incredible. This week I was drawn to a short passage in the New Testament that speaks of Jesus being our Redeemer. And I think it explains well why and how. But it's got a Bible word in it that I want to explain, because I don't want to take liberties with you and here's the concept I want you to get being enough the biggest story there we go the Bible often uses the word righteousness I want to suggest to you that when I talk about being enough I want to suggest to you that the word righteousness sums that up let me try and illustrate some of you know that I run a business that makes prototypes um, the prototypes are then used to test products before they go to mass production. So customers send us their data files and we make their stuff. It's very interesting. Every day is different. And in our factory, I could take you on a tour if you like, but in, in our factory, there's a little desk at the end of the factory. And um, I suppose it's our quality control station. And there's a computer there, and there's a guy, different guys and girls, who each day will sit there, and they'll pull the customer's data up onto the screen, and they'll get the part, and there's all kinds of tools to measure. So they look on the screen, it should be 10 centimetres long, and then they measure the part, and hopefully it's 10 centimetres long. And if it passes the quality control, it then gets posted out, to the customer. The idea behind the word righteousness in the Bible, this word is really describing a kind of relational quality control. God is righteous. He measures up perfectly. Everything about God is what it should be. He would pass relational quality control Every day of the week, all day, every time, all the time. And I want to say to you, it is a good and beautiful thing that the God we worship is righteous. It would be a terrible world if he wasn't. But it's a little scary for us. Because we fall short. Our righteousness does not measure up as it should do. Morally, 
morally. We, we have to admit that we are not enough. Like Naomi and Ruth, we are needy. But our problem is not that we have no food. We've got plenty of that. Our issue is far more serious. Our issue is that we don't have the right quality of righteousness. Let me turn with you then to the New Testament. We're just going to go very, very quickly to the book of Romans in chapter 3. Uh, let me give you a page number. It's 1130. 1130. We're nearly done, but I just want to finish with this. We're going to read, first of all, uh, from verse 19. 1130. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. This is a man called Paul writing, and he says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, that's God's law, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And get this, therefore no one will be declared righteous. No one will pass quality control. By, By the works of the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Friends, this is saying that when we ourselves go into quality control, none of us anywhere will ever be declared righteous or enough by trying to keep God's moral laws. Before the perfect righteousness of God The whole world, every single person in the world, is basically speechless. That's what it says. We don't have any argument to bring. There's nothing we can say. We have no defense. We can only put our hands over our mouths. Shouldn't do that when I'm talking. But thanks be to God, there is another way. Verse 21. But now, what a plight that is. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given. Given, not earned. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between the religious and the non-religious. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by the great Redeemer, Christ Jesus. God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There is a righteousness 
that we can have that does not depend on us passing quality control. Verse 23 says we're on the same boat. There's no difference. All of us fall short. None of us can pass quality control. The religious and the non-religious are not on opposite sides. They're on the same side and they all fall short. But verse 24 is like a trumpet blast. We can be justified freely by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Being justified is the same as being enough. Verse 25 tells us that this comes through the death of Jesus. It cost Boaz a great deal to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. But I want to tell you, it cost Jesus a great deal more. Jesus comes into the world to swap places with us. Here's the deal. Jesus passes quality control. He lives a perfect life that measures up in every way, in all the ways we don't. And then he dies the death that we deserve. We've often lived as if Jesus were nothing to us. And yet, he would rather die than be separated from us. Such is his love. He pays our debts. He takes our place. His death is a death of atonement. That means he died to take our guilt away so that we would know his peace and forgiveness. All of our talks in the series have started with the word surprising, and this last talk is entitled A Surprising God. What the writer of Romans here is preaching, listen, what he's preaching here is not performance to earn being enough. What he's preaching here is a cross. This is the summit now. This is what the story of Ruth really points to. It is a story of rescue and redemption. It is a story of love overcoming every obstacle, even our sin and guilt. And this is a story of people who were outside being brought inside and knowing in their hearts that they are now enough. Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. He is family, like Boaz was. He came from heaven and took our flesh and blood so that he could be our kinsman. He couldn't do that by staying in heaven. That's why he had to be born as a human. And he didn't come into the world primarily to tell us what to do. He came into the world to do it for us. If you're a believer, I want you to enjoy the view. Some of you are living as if you're not enough. Some of you are living 
as if this isn't true. Some of you have forgotten that you have a redeemer who is family, who is rich, who has bought you. Let me close our series in Ruth with a word to those of you who may not yet be a Christian. This has got to be the question, hasn't it? How do you get this? How do you know this? How can you say, Jesus is mine? Well, it tells us in this passage, in verse 22, this righteousness is given through what? Faith. I so much want you to hear and get and know this. Jesus has not come into the world to tell you to do something in order to qualify and be enough. He has actually come to do the rescuing. If he is asking you to do something, we're back with religion again, aren't we? He hasn't come to make it possible for you to be rescued. He has actually come to rescue you and I. He is the one who, because of his love, has overcome every obstacle. This is grace. The gospel of God's grace tells you simply to believe in Jesus. It tells you to stop looking at yourself and look away from yourself and look to him. There's no task to pass. There's no qualification to bring. He offers himself to you. And you can have him, all of him, today, tomorrow, and forever. When you don't think Jesus is enough for you, somehow it will shrink you and you won't be enough. But when you see that he is everything, only then will you be able to lift up your head and know that in him you also are already enough. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for your amazing word. We thank you for the demonstration today of how it all hangs together as one coherent story, even though separated by hundreds of years, centuries. We thank you for this amazing story, love story. We thank you for Ruth and Boaz and all the things we can learn from their lives. But Father God, we thank you that this all is intended to point us to Jesus. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Father God, you have given us your son. You, you couldn't give us any more than him. We thank you that Christ died in our place. We thank you that even today we can embrace him, believe in him, 
follow him, obey him, love him, treasure him. We thank you that there's an open door in front of us that we can walk through because Jesus has done it all. Father, I just pray today, Lord, my words are feeble, but I pray, I pray so much today that your own word would come to people's hearts with power and that you would enable all of us to open our eyes and see something of the view. Help us, Lord, to be able to say, wow, as we see and embrace Christ. Father, for those of us who know Jesus and have forgotten, I pray today it would be a day of being reminded that by your grace we are enough. That we can stand made righteous in your presence because of your love and grace to us. I pray that you would lift up our heads and help us to live in the light and the joy of that fact. We pray in Jesus' name.